we ask ourselves, oh, what, am I getting my needs met? Which is an important question. But we don't necessarily ask ourselves, what am I putting in to this relationship? Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a force within the field of psychology. He is the director of the Marriage and Family Therapy Program and the Couples on the Brink Project at the University of Minnesota, author of numerous books on marriage and family therapy, and a sought-after speaker. In addition to all that, he recently founded the Citizen Therapist for Democracy to help therapists working with clients experiencing public stress related to our politically divided nation. He's been married since 1971 and has two grown children and four grandchildren. We're thrilled to have him come share his personal and professional wisdom about relationships and what to look for in a potential partner. Welcome, Bill Doherty. Great to be with you. We wanted to start off by asking you how you became interested in working with couples. I started out as a family therapist working with teenagers and their parents and soon discovered that a lot of the problems the teenagers were having was related to their parents' relationship. And in fact, sometimes the teenager shaped up right away. They were just sort of glad to drop mom mom and dad off at the therapist's office. And so I would start to see the parents. And uh, then I'd like that. And so um, I ended up doing more of that work. So what kind of work do you do with couples now? Well, the, um, the kind of signature thing I do that I developed is something called discernment counseling. And it's for married couples or couples who have made a permanent commitment to their relationship, where one of them is leaning out is thinking about divorce or breaking up, and often the other one is leaning in. They, uh, they, they don't want to end it. And the leaning out one is ambivalent not only about whether to stay, but whether to do couples therapy. So we call these mixed agenda couples. Okay, And they don't do well in couples therapy because couples therapy is based on the idea that you're both there at least to try. And so I developed a particular way of working with these couples where we take the, uh, the reluctant spouse, the, the leading us, but we take their concerns very seriously. We don't try to talk them into doing couples therapy. We try to help the leading in one bring their best self forward so that it makes it more likely that the person will want to do therapy. So it's one to five sessions and and uh, the goal is clarity and confidence about a direction based on a deeper understanding of what's happened to the relationship and each person's contributions to the problems. So it's not therapy in terms of changing, improving. We don't teach them anything. We don't do interventions. But we try to help them get clear so that they can decide whether to actually do serious couples therapy or divorce. Can you talk a little bit about um, the ambivalence that you see in the, in the partner who is leaning out of the relationship. How do you understand the the ambivalence that those partners have and some of the different types of ambivalence that you see about? Yeah, so it varies quite a lot. Uh, you know, from the, on the one hand, the, uh, the leaning out uh, person who's been miserable for a long time, there's been, a, you know, a long agonizing downward trajectory in the relationship. They've tried help, they've t- you know, and they're just truly miserable. Um, or 
their spouse is, is in addiction and, you know, there's some big, pretty big dysfunction here. And so for them, um, the ambivalence is, is, is this the time to really end it? Is it still possible that my spouse could make a turnaround? Is it still possible we could pull this out? Because mo- most people, you know, they take their commitments seriously if they've made them. So that's one category. Uh, another category is uh, the uh, somebody who is just has sort of a vague unhappiness in the relationship, and and they're asking themselves, "Is this where I want to be long term?" Um, and um, um, and they, but they're not sure that's enough reason to end it, particularly if they have kids. Um, and then a third category would be uh, people who are having an affair, uh, either an emotional or sexual affair, and they have a alternative partner who they are weighing going being with versus their spouse. But they feel guilty a lot of times, you know, for the secret affair and kind of ashamed, and uh, and um, and they're just twixt in between. How is it for the partner who is invested in the relationship to hear that their partner is so ambivalent? It's hard. Yeah, so the leaning in, we call that the leaning in person, uh, uh, they, this is tough uh, because they feel out of control of a very, very important part of their life. And the patterns there are that you can have the kind of very anxious leaning in spouse who's desperate to make it work and uh, kind of throwing themselves at their, sp- their spouse, you know, just trying to, you know, don't leave me, um, and, and then flipping back and forth between that and being angry that you're doing this to me. Um, and so, um, so they, they require a particular approach. They, each, each of these sort of patterns requires a different approach uh, from the discernment counselor. You have a, another type of leaning in spouse who is just, who is mad. Okay, uh, because hey, I I did you know a lot of the work in this relationship. So p- picture a leaning in wife whose husband is having an affair. Okay, and she felt like she was carrying three fourths of the workload in the marriage all along, and then he's got this honey on the side, and she's mad. Which probably just pushes him. Well, even that's further. it. That's it. You know, um, that's it. That that's if you just you know, uh, vent your anger, and he's got his honey who thinks he's wonderful, okay? And then the third, the third type um, are the, the kind of grounded leaning in, and that is that they realize that there have been some problems in the marriage that they have been part of, okay? And that their spouse, okay, got to this point, it's hurtful, maybe it's surprising, maybe it's not surprising, but they're signing up to say, I want to understand what's happened better. I want to understand my part in this, and I'm not just blaming you. And what we try to do with the first two, you know, the the anxious ones and the angry ones, is convert them into the third category, okay? Where uh, you're where you're saying, okay, this is where we are. I wish we weren't here, but you, my uh, my partner, you have some legitimate beefs about me that I'm willing to look at and I'm willing to do my part in making change. Couples who are interested in discernment counseling, what would you tell them about what they can expect from the process? Yeah, it's a very different process than couples therapy because most of the time is spent with each person separately. So they come in together, 
uh, and there's some questions you ask them both together. But the bulk of the sessions are talking to them separately because they have different agendas. You know, you you, um, you you can't expect the leaning out spouse to be fully honest about how they're feeling about their spouse with them there. I mean, this 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 anxious, sad, hurt person. And you're saying, you know, so think about it. a woman said, you know, every time he touches me, my skin crawls. Yeah, she can't say that in front of him, okay? But she can say that to me, and then I can try to help her understand what's going on with that, okay? Uh, similarly, with the leaning in one who is um, making all these mistakes of, you know, of trying to coerce and persuade and say, you know, whatever happened to commitment and, you know, God's going to get you or whatever, I, I try to help them settle down. And understand that um, that they can't they can't keep pursuing and scolding their spouse, uh, or they're going to drive them away. But I have to help them with their feelings about this. You know that I understand how hard this is. And the thing about the, with the leaning in, we're always asking, do you want to save your relationship? And if so, then this is going to require some very difficult things. Now, it's going to require you not not to be. Uh, what you might see is, is your authentic self now, okay, but your best self in, in a crisis. And then for the leaning out one, we're trying to help that person, uh, you know, have a, a holding environment where uh, their ambivalence is, is accepted and where we try to help them see in a more complex way what's going on. See, when you're leaving any relationship, really, you have a narrative you constructed. If you're, you're the initiator of a breakup, you have a narrative about how we got together, whether that was a mistake or not, what, what the flaws were there, I may have missed, how the relationship proceeded, and then why uh, we got to the point that I feel like I have to end it. There's a narrative there. And inside any relationship, the narrative is always at least partial, shall we say, okay? Um, you know, there's biases, right? We, we can't see it from an objective standpoint. And so part of the job of the discernment counselor is to help make them, help them see their, their story, their narrative in a more complicated way. That includes their own contributions. Yeah, I imagine for the person leaning out, they have to construct a pretty negative narrative yes. in order to give themselves permission to yes. leave a relationship. That's and so right. they don't have a very nuanced view of, no, of what's going no. on. No, so, so, right. So there are things like uh, the, the original flaw um, story. And that is, you know, we never were meant for each other. There, there, there was... It, it, we never had the basis of a relationship, okay? Uh, because, well, I was on the rebound from another one, or um, we're, we're kind of incompatible from the beginning, but didn't see it because we were in lust and love. And so one of the ways you can narrate yourself out of a relationship is to say it never was a, a, a good relationship, okay? Now, they're partly seeing, you know, some things that were there, but they're also reconstructing history. There's an interesting research study that, that was the first to document where we, we've seen this in counseling all the time, is that the one who's leaning out recreates the story that points in the direction it has to end. And so they emphasize the negatives. The leaning in one may see the story completely differently. But what can happen is you can have somebody switch 
you know, I'm talking about these as if they don't switch. People switch roles, okay? So the leaning in one who was romanticizing the early, if they switch to the leaning out was what he's showing now is exactly what he was showing there. And, you know, so, um, so we try to help them see it in a more complicated way. And, and the big thing is to help the leaning out person see their contributions to the problems. <clears throat> what we say in discernment counseling, the only failure in discernment counseling is if nobody learns anything. And I, use, I, like, I like to say sometimes to a leaning out spouse, you know, you can't divorce yourself. Okay? We carry ourselves with us into the next relationships. And so this is an opportunity, even if you decide to divorce and not do the therapy, this is a time to learn about yourself in this relationship. What makes me sad is when people leave, you know, seriously committed relationships and marriages, and, you know, particularly if they have kids, and all they learned was that they, dummy, I married the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are a lot of people, especially younger people, yeah. are taking longer to make the decision about both moving in together, but also getting married. Yeah. And um, maybe have a little bit more time to reflect on if this is, you know, the person that they're with is the right person for them. What would you, what would be some advice you have about things to look for? What are the red flags? Yeah, so a, a big one um, is how the person handles conflict. Because uh, that's what a lot of research points to, is, uh, is um, over the long course of a relationship, uh, you're going to get out of sync with each other. You're going to bother each other. And do you have the capacity to air your complaints and grievances and work those through? Uh, and, but when people are um, in the earlier phases of relationship, there may not be that many negatives that come up. Not, not like when you're living together and running a household and kids. and I mean, there's plenty of opportunities for negatives, right? But, but prior to that, the positive glow of the good feelings and the and the uh, the relative lack of opportunities for conflict mean that you have to really pay attention to the conflicts that do come up. Um, and so, if you are dealing with somebody who avoids conflict, and what would that look like? You know, you um, you have the sense that your your partner is upset with you about something, uh, but they won't admit it. Um, um, and when you have an issue with them, they shut it down right away. Uh, you know, so, oh, yep, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, but yeah, hey, yeah, we don't have to get into that. Yeah, I, I, my bad. And you actually want to process it a bit more. You, you, your goal was not to just ask for an apology, like somebody stepped on your shoe, okay? That you actually are, there's something happening here. Uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it could be lots of examples, but you know, it could be around jealousy. It could be about how they relate to your friends. It could be lots of things, and you actually want to work this through because it's it's a it's a barrier for you, and the conflict avoider will will not go there with you, and and because there's so many so many positive feelings in the relationship, they it can look pleasant. It can look it can look good. You know, like it, it looks better than you know he got furious at you, you know, and stormed around. But it's dangerous because 
you know they have feelings that that were you know you're you're not the, the you know I always say that the saints you know the great saints they never were married you know they never were in relation they were celibate for a reason right um, and so you know anybody who's with you has has issues with you and if they won't if they won't argue with you that's that's a red flag because they're going to be putting all their stuff in the sack and at some point it's going to come out and those are ones where the vulnerability is more is partly about this person could just leave you someday never having leveled with you about their complaints their concerns because they think that is harmful they they, they see themselves they, they think that conflict is destructive and maybe they grew up in a family where there's too much of it so they're not going to go there but then then at some point this is the risk if if you don't know where you stand with this person Someday they go, a little click occurs, and they say, you know, I think it's time to move on. And what? Right. Because whatever feelings they've been experiencing, who knows how long it's been building up because yeah. they've never expressed it. They haven't expressed yeah. it. And you can never recalibrate your relationship because you're not getting enough input from this other person. So your relationship is going off in this direction. So let's say you're... You know, you're you're working more. You're you've taken on this new project, and and you're saying, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, I want to know how you're feeling about my being less available and less. You know, oh, I, you know, it's just it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But you're getting little passive aggressive things, okay? Like around your friends, you know, then then your partner is saying, yeah, I'm really going all the time, you know, and oh, so later on you want to process that. That that kind of stung. This little jab it felt like a jab. No, no, no. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said that. I was really. I thought I was trying to kid. Uh, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. And hmm, but it's happening, right? And it makes you insecure. And again, at some point, this person could say, I, you know, I, I need to be with somebody who is who can be with me. But they haven't ever leveled with you. So it's more it's it's scarier than the person who gets explosive and you know sort of kind of the opposite of that. Yeah, in some it's ways. scary. And it, it, there are trade-offs, okay. But in terms of of the sudden the sudden end, that's you you worry about the the, the nice conflict avoider there. Uh, but the other category that you're alluding to is the person who flares at you, okay, who is strictly defensive you know when you say uh you know that kind of comment about how much i'm on the road and you never see me anymore and everybody laughed and haha it kind of kind of bothered me and and i are you you know how are you feeling about us right now and then you get can't i joke in front of some friends like, am I not allowed to have a sense of humor around here? And by the way, you are so hypersensitive. And then bang, what's happened was you brought up uh, just a, a thing that occurred, and then it's turned on you. And then you're defending yourself, okay? And then you're, then, well, and then here's where the imbalance comes, because if you're the person who actually wants to look at your own contributions, <laughs> and the other one isn't, then you start to second guess yourself. Well, maybe I am being hypersensitive, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what do I care what they think anyway? You know, so you start to question yourself because you're dealing with a defensive person who gets angry in conflict and flares, who at the moment seems 100% self confident. This is about you, honey. This is about your super sensitivity. That's what this is about. 
and so I worked with a lot of people who the, the, the plus side of their personality where they want to look at their own contribution actually gets in the way of, of realizing that at this moment what is happening, this is a table turning. Okay. And I imagine over time, if that's chronic, then they be, end up becoming the conflict avoiders because they're questioning how they're feeling. Well, that's right. And, and th that's right. And then they bring it up sideways. See, that, that's the thing about conflict. If you don't bring it up straight, it's going to come out sideways. It's going to come out. And, and I always, so I always point to the person who is the avoider. Um, uh, uh, and they see their spouse as the negative one. I always point out, I make this observation, that you're, you're, if you're not dealing up front with a conflict, you're going to be punishing your spouse in other ways. Hi, Lovelink listeners. Our group practice, Modern Mind, is located in New York City with offices in Brooklyn and Manhattan offering in-person and virtual psychotherapy. We provide individual, couples, and group therapy, as well as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in conjunction with a psychiatry prescriber. Therapy is a powerful experience that can transform your life and help you live it to its full potential. We're here to help take you where you want to go. To find out more about our practice, visit www.modernmind.co or Email info at modernmind.co to be connected with one of our therapists. So aside from conflict, what are some of the other things that partners should be looking for, thinking about when kind of taking to the next level of commitment? Yeah, another one I put uh, on the list is, is jealousy. There's a way in which uh, early on it can seem sweet. You know, this person really like wants to be with me and flattering it's flattering you know um but be really cautious about that and and that's where you have to do a self-inventory because if you are you know if you're out with your partner and you're flirting around you know that's that's kind of disrespectful to your i think to your spouse so so maybe there maybe there's something to it so you do that self-inventory but if if you're just relating in a friendly way with other people um, and you know yourself well enough on that and you're getting this jealousy stuff be really aware of the trap of thinking that that means you're special because what this what this is coming from is insecurity that I, I couldn't keep you myself and these other people are they're better than I am and that's going to erode the relationship are there more on the list? Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. There's endless. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, endless. Another one is is the person prioritizing time with you. Mm, mm. That's a big one, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you know nowadays, just you know, there's so many young couples who have high powered careers. I mean, you know, this is. It used to be. Um, you know, you, you didn't work that many hours in your 20s and then it increased in your 30s and then, you know, but now, you know, crazy work hours. And then, of course, people have their personal hobbies and interests and others. So if, if, um, if this person isn't giving time to you, which is this precious commodity, it's, it's like time is love in some ways, right? And if they are... Um, if you're continually pursuing them 
for time together. And they are giving you their reasons and excuses and, and just reassuring you that, that how much they care about you, okay? Uh, and, uh, but this, once this project is over, <laughs> you know, uh, you, have to, you have to do, you have to ask yourself, is this going to be a chronic problem in our relationship? I've noticed what typically happens for people when they're beginning a relationship is they're going through this lust phase, yeah. and they're not really seeing the issues emerging, not recognizing them, not taking the time to really reflect. Can you talk a little bit about you know, kind of the trajectory of a relationship and what can happen in the lust phase that that can blind us to some of these oh, issues. Oh boy, yeah. Well, nature, nature programmed us for that, right? So really it's well. yeah, really well. <laughs> and so our, our prefrontal lobe of our brain can go offline during that. Um, and, um, and but the thing is, if you're at a time in your life when you're actually thinking about whether you want a relationship that could be an enduring one, if you're younger and I mean, go for it. Who cares, right? You know, it just. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're not looking for anything permanent, and it feels great, and you know, and just you know, take care of yourself, right? But um, but if you are actually what I would call in a discerning phase in your life about a potential lifelong partner, then what I think what what it would be good for people to tell themselves is is prior in going into any relationship that you're in a discernment mode as well as a just having a great time mode okay um it's kind of like when you're if you're in college and you're taking any job you can get that's different than if you're 30 and you have these job options okay because at 30 you know you're looking more what's the trajectory here when you're 20 you know pour coffee you know it doesn't matter you just need the money so i think it's the same way for relationships uh and um and if you're in that sermon mode then you you have to you have to keep that part of your brain online um enjoy the feelings but also um have a little bit of of a questioning of how they make you blind and what would that look like? Like, how do you recommend someone in that lust phase to really reflect um, and discern? Yeah, some of it is just, am I, do I think this relationship could be a lasting one? And am I open to that? As opposed to, no, I'm not, okay? I'm moving in a year, and I don't know what, you know. So ask yourself what your goals are. Do you recommend having these conversations with your partner, with their partner in this part of the Not relationship? Not necessarily. <laughs> it could overload the relationship early on. Uh, there's a way in which um, it's kind of like when people are leaning in and leaning out of a marriage. It's not good to have a lot of conversations about that. I mean, you need to know where the other person is. But the processing, so... I, I, the way I always put it is the decision to commit or to end the commitment are individual decisions. That each person has to has to decide individually. Do I want in? Okay. Now out, it just takes one, of course. But but um, it's it's not. So I really think it's it's appropriate early in a relationship to process this stuff with your friend. Um, uh, and uh, and then decide what to bring up, because the other thing we know about 
relationships of formation is that people are hardly ever, you know, on the, the same trajectory, you know, the same, it happens, but often somebody is out ahead of the other. Just like with a breakup, somebody is usually out ahead of the other, okay? So in terms of, of a commitment and openness to it, somebody is usually out ahead of the other. And so, so you need to be honest in the relationship and your everyday relationship. But I think some of the discerning about whether this is a, a keeper relationship you should be doing on your own. I'm thinking about now sometimes how relationships can get overloaded with, um, you know, people uh, engaging in a lot of online dating yeah. and feeling like this pressure to make something work or latch on to something that relationships can easily be overloaded from the beginning. Um, and there's less curiosity because there's so much information people are presenting them, yeah. presenting up front yeah. rather than allowing for more natural evolution. This point about uh, how much information people are getting early on is, is very interesting because the, the classic theory about, the, about relationship formation is called social penetration theory and it's about calibration of self-disclosure. So the first time we meet, I tell you this about me and you tell me that. And then, you know, and then we gradually, gradually we talk more and more personally. You know, I don't tell you what I think of my mother on the first date, okay? But maybe that needs to come out at some time or some past failed relationships that have left me a bit scarred. I mean, those would be some examples, okay? Uh, and in, in healthy relationship formation, uh, there is a calibration of self-disclosure. So have you ever been with somebody, you know, in a first meeting, ah, and, you know, it's like too much information. You know, um, the person's uh, abuse history, I mean, okay, I mean, you know, it brings <laughs> yeah. out my, oh, gee, yeah. you know, this is hard. But, I, but see, the thing with self-disclosure is that we human beings expect it to be reciprocated. So when I tell you something about my family of origin, okay, I'm sort of ex expecting you to, or you feel that even if I don't say it. And, and so too much information too soon kind of overloads those circuits. I think about uh, another way of framing it as healthy boundaries. Yeah. And when someone has poor boundaries, it also makes you question what other boundaries they're going to be violating yes. and, and how much they're just not aware of what's appropriate or inappropriate. Yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. remember going on a date once. It was a first date where uh, the guy told me all about his addiction history yeah. and how he was sober and had been sober for a long time. But it was like, it was a lot for me yeah. to take in. And I really didn't know how to respond to him yes. Yes. because I felt, I think I felt overloaded yes. and was incapable of, of, a lot of empathy because I just felt like I got to get out of here. This is too much. Yeah. And then, and then as therapists, we end up playing the role as therapists. Exactly. Right. And, they, and it's not an intimate connection. No, it's it like is. a patient. It's a patient therapist, right. therapist relationship. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, so that's actually another red flag is when somebody uh, discloses too much too soon of things that are quite personal. It's a red flag okay. that, that they don't have really good boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, and you find yourself overloaded um, or if, even not over, just sort of pulling back. Um, uh, you know, and um, another one, if we're kind of jumping around here a little bit, that I did mention before, the I'm, so I'm a specialist. Laundry list. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a specialist in red flags and relationships. Uh, so, this is one that my children, who are now grown up and, you know, happily married, partnered, um, 
told me that I used to say when they were, you know, late adolescence and in college, that I, I you know, they remember it. Uh, and and I, I would say, pay a lot of attention to how your spouse, your, your the, the one you're getting involved with, talks about their parents. Mm. Um, because if, let's say, you're seeing a guy and you're a woman and he's saying how awful his mother was, you're next, okay? Because he's describing this very close relationship that was really very difficult for him. And if he's saying it in a way he's putting down his mother, he's not just sort of saying, you know, we had a difficult relationship. That would be better boundaries, right? Uh, and, and then he's saying, you know, you're nothing like her. Um, this is problematic because we, there's a template that got formed there uh, in that relationship that he's not aware uh, that he's carrying that and that he's, ex- he's exalting you and putting down his mother. Mm-hmm. Okay? And um, what I always say is, you know, you're next because in the furnace of, a, uh, of an intimate relationship, at some point everybody will look like the worst of the parents. Uh, you know, they, you, you will look that way. Uh, and, and you don't want somebody who puts you on a pedestal early on in any kind of comparison, even though it's lovely. But again, it's, it's the danger of simplification that when somebody is put into, you know, whether it's the narrative, the negative or the positive narrative or, um, you know, putting somebody in the category of being like a parent or totally different from a parent. Yes, it's yes. that oversimplification that gets yes. us in trouble in relationships. Yes, I think probably yes. the same is true for exes too. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. So that's, that's the next one. Listen very carefully for how they describe their exes and how those relationships ended. Um, and because if you're getting dripped, drip, drip, or or flagrant hostility about their ex, this is somebody who has not processed this well. Uh, and if you don't get anything that this person felt that they contributed to the breakup, or that you know we just weren't compatible, whatever, if if it's all negative, uh, once again. Some of that was related to that person, but some of it is probably related to the to dealing with an intimate relationship, and that's going to come out in your relationship. So, in determining about taking the relationship to the next step and potentially moving in with each other, so we've passed mm-hmm. the lust phase, yeah. and now we're kind of thinking about: Do we want to commit in a serious mm-hmm. way to mm-hmm. to potentially forever? Um, what do you think is the best? sort of a most thoughtful next step for couples. There's a lot of research that's come out that says yeah. that couples that move in together before they get married are more likely to separate, are more likely to divorce. Mm-hmm. So how do you recommend couples think about moving in together pre-marriage? Yeah, and this is, of course, is a question that prior generations never had, you know, that, that um, on a large scale. Um, uh, and so I, my, you know, uh, urging for this generation is to be more thoughtful, intentional, and mindful about this than sometimes people have been. 
um, that what's happened is that uh, living together has become uh, a kind of a next step in a relationship, sometimes done because somebody's lease is up or, you know, it just... Um, it, it just for like what I call instrumental reasons. Uh, and there's often somebody a little bit ahead of the other on this and, 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 and kind of pushing for it. Um, one of the things that we've learned in the research is that, um, that there's a tendency to slide into cohabitation instead of decide. And then a tendency to slide into marriage from a cohabiting relationship instead of deciding. So my admonition is make these decisions because this is um, a, a big step forward, you know, big, you know, big step in intensity to live together. And one of the things that people may not realize is it's harder to break up. The costs of breaking up go up considerably when you're living together. I mean, buying furniture together, all kinds of yeah, stuff. You know, yeah, basically. And maybe if you move into the other person's place, you know, you're homeless then, right? In a sudden breakup, right? And so the costs go way up. And, um, and there are people, again, this is what some research is showing, there are people who then slide into a permanent commitment like marriage in part because they don't want to break up. Okay. On their own, this person may not have been saying, this is the one I want to marry. There may be still some discerning going on there, but they, they don't want to break up. And so what the heck? And then they do the, oh, it's just a piece of paper and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then all of a sudden you find yourself married ambivalently. Yeah. This is not a good thing. So in summary, being mindful, intentional about taking it to this, this next step. The, the research on the aftermath of cohabitation for people who live together and get married, the, um, the, there's two things I want to say about it. There's no research evidence that it helps you if you get married to have lived together, none whatsoever. So if there's any kind of cultural myth that the younger generation believes that is there's no support for is that it's stupid not to live together a lot of people like test driving a car um, it, it's turned around from when i was young where it was living in sin to now you're an idiot for not living together and uh and both of those were both of those are unfound well i guess if you want to talk about sin you could theologically but in terms of it being <laughs> no. some terrible irresponsible thing no but it's also, um, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help you in your marriage. In part because you're probably already sexual with each other. So it's not like, you know, you're learning, you know, oh my goodness, I just learned that we don't like each other sexually. You, before you live together, you're going to be sexual with each other. Um, and you're probably not intertwining your lives like you really will when you are married. You may not have the same bank account. You, you may not be then making decisions about children and this. And you don't have in-laws then. Okay, you have your boyfriend or girlfriend's family, but you don't have in-laws. And you don't have all these expectations on you that comes from all these folks around you. So marriage is very, very different from cohabitation. And that's not clear to a lot of, a lot of young people. Um, and therefore, they can end up sliding into marriage 
And then I see some of these folks later on at the sermon counseling when they're considering divorce, that they're questioning their decision-making about how they committed. We've talked a lot about red flags, things to watch out for, things, um, you know, blind spots that we all may have uh, when we think about a relationship and whether to stay or, or to, to leave a relationship. I'm wondering, what are some things that people worry about too much? You know, things yeah. that people can get yeah. caught in anxiety about that maybe aren't, aren't worth all, all the anxiety. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, okay, compatibility. I think is overrated. Say more. Um, do we both like to ski? Do we both like, uh, you know, French novels or something? You know, um, these are cool things. If you happen to have things in common, it's part of what can connect you. But there's a good chance over the course of uh, of a relationship's history that uh, you know you could blow out your knee and you're not skiing anymore or you got kids and you're not going out dancing as much and the dancing may have been the compatibility thing and so I think it's uh, it's tempting for people now with so much information coming coming at them to be looking at shared interests compatible work just you know all of these things line up when um, a they they're at the change and then what happens so I've, I've had people, again, in discernment counseling considering divorce who are looking at how things have changed, like after they had kids and they don't do those things. That was the basis of the relationship. Well, that's, that's a pretty, I think, pretty flimsy basis of the relationship that you like, you know, you like to ski. And, um, and now then they begin to question it. So I think, I think what I mean by compatibility, I guess, is similarity how much alike we are, I think there has to be enough there. Uh, but that can be overplayed. Another one would be we don't argue, you know, or, 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 or thinking arguing means that you're not really meant for each other. That this idea that it should be just beautiful and we should just flow together and we're soulmates. So p some people see conflict reasonably well-managed as a red flag and I see it as actually a good a, a good flag if you're handling it well uh, and uh, but maybe your Facebook friends never reveal that they have any any conflict so some people think that happens um, I was talking to a, um, a counselor at a, um, a Bible college uh, and there there's a lot of push for young people to marry young like before you get out of college, so they don't have premarital sex. And, um, and there's also this notion, and this is not just for kids in Bible colleges out there in the culture, that you're looking for your soulmate, that there is a soulmate for me. And the problem with the soulmate is that if you disagree or you seem to be incompatible on some things, then it means it's not your soulmate. And this counselor told me that he sees these young people, they get married, and then they find out they have issues. And what they conclude is that they, God does have a soulmate picked out for me, but it's not this person. 
my my screw up. Okay, so take take the theological part out of it, but it's still out there in the culture that that uh, this person and I just have to be, you know, you, you what's that line? You know, you complete me. You know, the two and the one and all that. And then when the regular stuff of differences comes up, uh, then it it spooks you away from a particular, you know, a good a good relationship. And the unfortunate thing is that that's just going to keep on coming up in yeah. the next relationship. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Similarly, um, um, the flashy parts of uh, if the flashy parts are so some some people end up not with somebody who they would be really great with because they have this idea that the person has to be I don't know sexy enough and good-looking enough or you know athletic enough and we have these sort of images um, uh, you know and you probably have heard it from women you know he's he's too nice a guy I mean where does that come from okay and so if you if you if you have uh, an internalized uh, template of, of you're attracted to bad boys you know or uh, then you might think you shouldn't follow up on a relationship with somebody who's a really nice guy so it sounds like there's certain compatibility qualities that are not crucial for a relationship to work. If you are thinking about committing to someone and thinking about the things that are important for marriage, I mean, what sorts of values or what sorts of conversations should be you be having um, thinking ahead, like overlapping compatibility in regards to children or things that maybe have a little more weight to them? Children for sure. Yeah. Children for sure. Boy, I see couples later in couples therapy who never surface that one. How do you suggest uh, bring, like broaching that subject? Well, this, this is what I think people can be really good at in the exploratory phase. You know, like, oh, I was just with my niece and nephew, and they're so adorable, and I just love kids. And Keep it know, casual. Yeah, you know, I've <laughs> yeah. always... You Not know, do you want to have children. Yeah, right. So, no, but I've always, I think from the time I could remember, I always wanted to have kids you know it's just you know it's just this is now now your turn <laughs> okay um but it's not coming out as a question but as a, a self-revelation and again from this reciprocity idea that's inviting you to comment about how you see children in your life now and the future but if your if your potential future partner says i don't know about this kid thing I don't, you know, I don't see myself that way. I don't roll it out. Mm. You need to be talking about this again. Because, again, I see people later on who they, they did have the conversation. And the one who doesn't want kids is, feels like he or she is on record about this. But they never had the conversation in depth. That I said, no, I don't ever see myself having kids. And then it's sort of this tense moment and we move on. And then, then you're hoping that I will change my mind. And then we, we get married. And uh, then I say, don't you think it's time? And then you go, what? This is, these are some of the most difficult cases I see because that's an either or thing. Um, and so, yes, you need to talk about it. But, but again, not, not with the... Uh, uh, Okay, from zero to five, how many children do you see us having if we get married? You know, you don't do it that way. What do you wish you knew before you got married? 
Yeah. Um, I so I've been married uh, forty six years. Wow. Yeah. Um, and um, I wish I knew um, how important it was to uh, uh, carve out time for us. Um, it took a number of years to figure that one out, uh, and um, and you know, and some. I think we argued more about that early on, particularly after kids than anything else. Uh, and it took a number of years uh, for us to develop um, uh, what I call rituals of connection. And so for us, it, it was we got a hot tub, and so every night in the hot tub, you know, outdoors under the stars as a way to sort of unwind and connect at the end of the day. And uh, it started out as just a comfort thing. We both happened to like hot tubs. And we bought this. And, um, but it took us a while to realize it had become part of our relationship. Um, and so I call that a ritual then. And so the default became every night we're in it. And, you know, if it's sleeting or something outside, it's not like some sort of rule. But one of the ways you know it's a ritual is that when you're not going to do it, you comment on it, as opposed to somebody's just upstairs in bed. Um, and um, so that kind of thing, and then going out to dinner every, you know, couple of weeks or something, even with kids and putting money into babysitting. Um, what I learned was that if you invest in your friendship time, um, this this has tremendous payoffs. Reduces conflict. It makes you feel. But that that what happens in inside marriage, and particularly with kids and a life together, is that the friendship part may diminish. The sex still may be good. Um, the you know you may handle disagreements a lot, but the uh, the time when you can just download your day and say what your was what is on your mind about tomorrow or next week that like you might do with a good friend um, that takes some cultivation. That does not happen automatically. It happens automatically in the early phases of a relationship because you're turned towards each other. Um, when you get married, and particularly if you have kids and a house and all that, you, you tend to face the world side by side. And this is actually positive because you're a team. That's good. But if what I, what I learned was the, the importance of carving out intentional time to turn towards each other as friends. That's lovely advice. That's really important. Do you have any advice for people out there who are experiencing a lot of ambivalence around their relationship and what you would sort of suggest for them to think about or do? A key thing for all of my work on this sort of discernment thing is to look at yourself, not just the other person. So so to ask yourself, um, what are the dissatisfactions I'm having, uncertainties, and um, and and how much of those are grounded in the other person, and how much of those are coming from inside me, uh, and and I still may decide I'm going to end this thing, but I'm going to learn something about me. Um, uh, if if you are in a love relationship with somebody, and and that's that's what's going to be if you're going to be thinking about a commitment, you you love this person. Um, and you see flaws and problems and difficulties in the relationship, it can be good to ask yourself how you chose this person. 
of all, all the ones out there. And I'm not saying then look for some fatal flaw in yourself, but just don't say, I don't like this and I don't like this and this. You know, what drew me to this person and do the things that I have learned since then make me say, no, I can't go the next step, but there's something that drew me. Carl Whitaker, who is one of the founders of family therapy, used to say that uh, nobody should divorce until they figure out why they married this person to begin with and why they're thinking of leaving them. It's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. great advice. And I think there's something, for serious relationships, there's something there. And what that means is, whatever you decide to do, you've learned something about yourself. That, that, that's the key, the self-learning, because we carry ourselves into the new relationships. And, um, and so that's, that's my response. Do you think people are too quick to leave each other in our culture? Oh yeah, I think we're in a in a consumer culture, uh, a, a kind of a disposable culture, and we ask ourselves, oh, what, "Am I getting my needs met?" Which is an important question, but we don't necessarily ask ourselves, "What am I putting in to this relationship?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I think it's uh, it's part of a consumer. So I've coined the term consumer marriage. You know, I. I remember a woman in a first session of couples therapy saying, this isn't the deal I thought I was signing up for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I understood what she was saying, but the metaphor there, you know, of of the deal. Uh, And the thing about particularly marriage, you know, this, um, you know, long trajectory out there, the sickness and health and all of that. and, And so you have to have some, it has to be more than how is it about me. Yeah, we need to take accountability as being the other half, yeah. and what we're putting in and what we're contributing. And if you form an us, then it's a triangle. It's me and you and us. Mm, okay. Yeah. And then what are my commitments to us, as well as to you? So that that's harder in a in a consumer society. So a final question is, we're curious, what's next for you? What projects you're working on now? Well, I'm trying to do couples therapy with the reds and the blues, the liberals and conservatives in our world. So I'm sort of taking what I've learned about couples and couples therapy and what I've learned about groups and about creating containers in which people can meet each other, learn from each other. So I've been applying that through an organization called Better Angels from the Lincoln phrase, Better Angels of Our Nature, um, to um, working on the, the political polarization in our country. Thank you so Thank much you for so speaking much. with us. Okay. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. 
And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.